Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I'm the co-host of this episode, Lillian Barger. I will be speaking with Elizabeth Lash Quinn, Professor of History at Syracuse University. Her book, Ars Vitae, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Art of Living, published by the University of Notre Dame Press, is our topic of conversation. The author provides a cultural critique that connects the most pressing needs of the individual in modern society to the insights of the ancient approach to philosophy as a way of life. The wisdom of the ancients offers a way to cultivate inner life as an alternative to therapeutic culture of self-help and consumerism. Beginning with how Gnosticism has reemerged in new forms, she explores how the ideas of the Stoics, Epicureans, Cynics, and Platonists shows up in our attempts to live more meaningful lives and gain a sense of well-being. Lash Quinn dives into the reflection of major 20th century thinkers who have thought about these connections, but also to expressions in self-help books and films. She shows us how we are both inheritors and betrayers of the lost art of living and a possible way forward. Here is my conversation with Elizabeth Lash Quinn. Now let me introduce you to the author. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, Before we get into the interview and really ask you the questions that we're really curious about, is tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book. I'm a modern, uh, a modernist, apparently. Um, I was uh, trained in graduate school as a um, historian, and I began my job at Syracuse University um, teaching American social, cultural, and intellectual history. It was defined very broadly. And um, after 15 years or so, or really a little bit less than that, about mid-career, I began uh, returning to some of my earlier interests. All along in my life, I had been uncomfortable with the idea of specialization or at least over-specialization. So at each part of my, at each turning point, I guess, in my um, intellectual life, I always tried to find ways to keep all of my previous interests and then add new ones. Um, But, you know, as uh, someone coming out of grad school and trying to get a job, you really have to pick something. And so I did teach as a modernist and wrote Um, in modern American cultural and social and intellectual history for years. And um, then I started to take up fields and also um, questions that um, took me out of that specialization and into philosophy, religious studies, back to languages. I had done a lot of language study before. I was actually a comparative literature major. Um, and uh, this led me to new authors, old authors. And um, I, I really kind of rediscovered my love for antiquity and philosophy, and particularly ancient philosophy. And I took those studies further. I went 
back to school in a way. I went to many new seminars in philosophy and religious studies. I took new languages, um, lots of lots of new languages, and also took up my old languages like Latin and French. And so I I was just expanding my knowledge and, and pursuing big questions that I and most people have in life as they go along. And um, then I, I uh, after applying for a Fulbright in Rome, Italy, I realized that my, my interest in antiquity and philosophy and history and modernity was all coming together in this project um, that sort of crystallized um, probably about eight years ago. So that's how I led to my topic. Well, you, you described yourself as a modernist. You do so in the book also. Well, what do you mean by that? Oh, just someone who takes up modern life and, you know, looks at it um, in a fine-grained way. So someone concentrating on, on modern life, I guess. Um, I, I like the term modernist rather than um, a modern... American historian, because mm-hmm. especially in the field of cultural and intellectual history, um, that brings you into fields like literature and philosophy and, and many others. Um, so a modernist is someone thinking about modern life, but using any fields of study and tools um, that might help us understand it. Okay, thank you. Uh you use a lot of terms that I, w- I want to first define before we go on. Sure. What is philosophy? And doesn't everybody <laughs> already have one? I do think people have a philosophy. And that's one thing I, I explore in this book. I think behind almost all of our decisions, and that could be everything from, you know, how a, an architect designs a building to how um, a musician composes a a piece of music um, or just someone approaching everyday life and decisions. Um, Everyone does have a kind of philosophy. Sometimes it's inchoate or unformed or maybe unconscious. And um, I'm trying to ask us to take seriously that side of us that is always making sense of things or trying to make sense of things or think things out. So the word um, philosophia is um, basically the um, love of wisdom. So um, I make an important distinction, uh, and a distinction I think is absolutely vital, between wisdom and knowledge, uh, because we we live in a, a time that has a premium on knowledge, or at least allegedly does, um, an information age. But acquiring information and even acquiring knowledge isn't quite the same as um, thinking of one's philosophy or approaching the world in a philosophical way, in a way that loves wisdom, and not just the accumulation of information or, or the strategic use of information in the knowledge economy and such today. Okay, so the un- another word that you that comes throughout the whole book and it's in the title of the book is inwardness. And yes. what is inwardness 
And what is the practice of inwardness? And does it take, do you have to have a lot of leisure and money to do that? Well, that's a great question. I love that question. Um, inwardness, the simple way to define it would just be the inner life, um, the cultivation of one's inner life. And um, I do not think you need leisure. Um, and I know uh, there's a whole argument out there that, oh, it was only the elite who ever had the time and the resources to think out um, their philosophies of living and things like that. But um, as we said earlier in this conversation, um, everyone has a kind of working philosophy, even if it's not completely conscious or developed. Um, there's a reason why people do things and think things and take certain approaches to certain things. And if you listen to human conversations, many times what they're actually conversing about is, in essence, their philosophy towards something or maybe toward living, or maybe something small closer to home. Um, so I really think that it's a human capacity to philosophize, to, to try to make sense of the world in, in theoretical or philosophical terms, or terms that um, attach our human experiences in the world to the effort to make sense of them. And that's something we all do. Um, I think that to think that it's only the preserve of the elite is actually in, it, in itself an elitist, elitist uh, perspective because it assumes that, yeah. Would you consider inwardness, what I would think of it is a sort of critical awareness of our, uh, our worldviews, our opinions, our what we think we know and asking ourselves questions continuously is why am I doing this? What do I really believe about this? Instead of just sort of unconsciously walking through life and not thinking about why am I doing this? And do I really believe this? Is that, is that what you, would that be inwardness? Yes, I do think so. Um, I would just make it a, a distinction between the kind of self-examination that is very common today and the kind of inwardness that I would like to see come back and get more attention. Um, the self-examination that we're all um, so immersed in in modern culture um, is often taking an external point of view on the self, the individual um, self, looking at the person from outside you know, looking at yourself in a mirror, how do I appear? Thinking about how you will appear on social media and really even manipulating the kinds of photos you put up there to show that you're living a certain way or you are a certain kind of person or for other reasons. Um, we often take an external point of view. This cultivation of inwardness is, oh, go on. So, I, so that what you're talking yeah. about there is a self-presentation. That uh, that is not what you're talking about. How I see, conceive of myself, and how I think I present myself. So it's all yeah, about yes. performance. Yes, but it's also a kind of self-examination. So it could seem like a kind of inwardness, and it it is a kind of inwardness because, um, but it's often 
um, a form of self-examination that leads to intense unhappiness and dissatisfaction with oneself rather than a form of inwardness that um, has you go inward, but for very different reasons. And the reasons for cultivating this kind of inwardness and this kind of inner life involve things like um, getting space from the outside world that, that can be so noisy and so distracting, um, and, and taking that time and space to examine oneself, but not ruthlessly in terms of, uh, you know, how one is measuring up to some, some, um, standard, uh, often inculcated by, by the dominant messages in society and advertisements and, um, consumer society, but rather to assess how one is measuring up to oneself and to one's, um, values and, and, uh, inner standards and, um, and conscience as well. And uh, for many people, um, one's uh, a divine presence or power, um, whatever that is. So it's a very different um, activity, this kind of inwardness from the self-examination that can, can actually just add to our problems. But this inwardness can... Um, become a great bulwark against some of the suffering and the, um, the, uh, the difficulties of the outside world. And it's uh, maybe right when we need this practice the most that we have kind of lost track of it. Um, so there's still much attention to the self and to turning inward, but not for the reason of this kind of cultivation of the inner life or the inwardness that ultimately can make people much more able to engage um, uh, fruitfully with other people. So it's I call it an um, inward-facing outwardness because the goal is to become better at um, getting along with other people and uh, living a happy life with others given all of the challenges that we all face in doing so. So what I hear that is an in, the inwardness you're talking about is also done with self-kindness. I just thought of that word, kindness, that mm-hmm. we're not beating ourselves up. Um, no. Because that's so much of what people do is an inwardness that is actually cultivating and nurturing uh, the self so that we can grow as people. Yes, I think so. And it's not on terms that I would consider kind of um, unhelpful. And those are the terms of the dominant therapeutic culture that we've inherited um, that focuses on, you know, building self-esteem or uh, one should feel good about oneself um, and... uh, because then uh, the way to get there is to buy this product or that product. So we have this kind of consumer therapeutic ethos that says that people should pursue, you know, self-interest, but it doesn't really get people to the the state of happiness that um, many of us are looking for. 
Okay. Now you classify, I would classify the book as cultural criticism. Mm -hmm. And, um, and your point, you point out some of the things you think are are wrong with modern society. They've gone wrong. And one is that you're, you talk about that there's a crisis of embodiment and also uh, a lostness of the self. The self is lost. And we, um, and then we, we turn to therapeutic answers. What are, what's wrong with therapeutic answers to try to recover some sense of who you are when the world is so confusing? Well, um, I think we should be very careful not to dismiss all therapeutic answers because I really try not to do that. Um, I think that there, there's a lot of suffering in the world. And if people have, um, turned to, various institutions or practices that help them, that's all to the better. But what I see in the culture at large is a kind of a therapeutic approach to living that doesn't actually provide a, you know, a therapeutic outcome. In fact, it seems often to contribute to the problem. So it's, it's hard to talk about this. Um, and the way I find is helpful is to use the ancient term therapeia um, to talk about the kind of therapy that was associated with these philosophical practices, uh, very different, and, and to contrast that with modern um, therapy culture, which is a kind of generalized sense that almost everything in life is there to make us feel better. But that ironically, does not really help us feel better because everything in life doesn't automatically make us feel better. So um, the therapeutic culture that I criticize um, in in looking at modern American culture is, um, is making people less able to get along with one another by focusing on the individual self and the individual's needs and wants, often to the exclusion of almost everyone else. So it's a kind of a hyper-individualism, this form of, of a therapeutic culture that focuses on the individual apart from um, other people. Okay. <clears throat> okay. You start off with uh, Gnosticism. And you talk a lot about it. You talk about it that it's still with us, and you have a seem to have a, a negative, uh, a, pro, a negative idea about what Gnosticism is or why it's a problem. Can you talk about what is Gnosticism and why is it a problem and where is it? Yes, Gnosticism was in antiquity something very different from uh, the way I'm using it as a. Um, as a way to look at modern culture, um, it was considered an ancient Christian heresy um, and treated as such, and, and Gnostics were persecuted, and um, Gnosticism was um, all but stamped out. Um, but um, it's also been used by people like Eric Vogelin and Hans Jonas and many others to look at modern life because um, strains of Gnosticism are still with us now. It was very strong in the late 19th century mind cure movement. Um, 
the kinds of uh, the return to to kinds of therapies that were very um, individual focused. So the way I use it is that the most helpful way is maybe to think of a synonym uh, being knowingness. So a kind of cult of being in the know, being one of the few who know the real way, the real deal, the real knowledge. And it's uh, a kind of, um, it can it can take many different forms. And um, uh, one of the forms that it takes is, I think, uh, some of the New Age therapies where um, people will latch on to a worldview and a form of therapy and even sometimes practice it um, just because they want to. And, and so there's a feeling that almost anything goes. But once they do, it becomes a very um, closed system in society. So if anyone else doesn't think in that way, they consider that to be um, the other. Um, so Gnostics um, saw the entire cosmos as separated between these uh, extreme forms of good and the extreme forms of evil. And then, um, so I'm not going to go into all that they believed. It's a very um, rich scholarship and there are debates on every single aspect of it. But the... I'm I'm wondering, uh, can I ask you a question about that? I'm wondering about uh, your your, uh, naming or assigning this term Gnosticism to a certain uh, sensibility in modern culture. And I'm just wondering if there are multiple strands of ideas that present themselves as they're similar to, they look like Gnosticism, but their their root and their their where they came from is a totally different thing. Oh, I'm I'm sure, and yeah, okay. um, it's yeah, it's important to separate that strand off. Um, and in as you said, it's a work of cultural criticism in many ways, and so it's only a helpful term if it helps us understand what we see before us. But I'm hoping that even readers who might disagree that Gnosticism is a helpful way to look at um, the therapeutic culture might still um, find that the discussion of what the problems are with this approach um, does resonate. And um, one of the, um, the forms that I think this kind of Gnostic therapeutic takes is the um, the what I I'm I'm calling the popular elitism. I know that sounds like a an oxymoron, a contradiction of terms, but um, we see just you know every single day a kind of um, uh, spread of of different conspiracy theories and different um, views of reality. Um, and as though it doesn't really matter anymore if something is real or based on any fact or common belief or inherited religious system or anything, but instead, um, if one wants it to be true and thinks it's true, it seems perfectly fine to believe it. And so what becomes, um, of essence is the, this kind of knowingness that that um, takes hold of people and whole groups of people. We're seeing this 
um, this kind of conspiracy thinking where uh, many, many people think one thing that's completely at odds with what others think and also with with what reality is. And so it's, it's kind of a cult of knowingness disassociated with um, basis in reality. Okay. Now you see a revival of classicism, which is Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, Platonism. You see kind of manifestations in our culture, some of the ideas that are borrowed and manipulated Mm -hmm. uh, for our modern concerns. But for most people, these things like Stoicism are just empty labels. Most people, uh, unless they're specialists, uh, don't think very much about these uh, particular philosophy schools. So how has modernity distorted the heritage of these ancient philosophies? Well, I I would beg to differ with the first part of the question. Um, I one of the things I do in this book is I chart a what I see as a movement. Um, maybe movement is too strong a term. I really see the emergence of all of these different schools of thought in modern culture or the persistence of them, the the renewal of them, a renewed interest. And Stoicism is one of the ones that really um, has a lot of adherence. So many people are self-consciously calling themselves Stoics now and embracing the new Stoicism, which um, several um, books and websites and organizations have um have uh, dubbed this this new interest. So, uh, and then in in popular culture, uh, movies like Gladiator, which was was and is an immensely popular uh, feature film, um, claims in many ways to to deal with Stoic themes and uh, with Stoicism as a way of life. Um, so yes, then I go and after um, talking about the emergence of these schools of thought, I I try to assess each one of them and determine to what extent it is uh, um, a sort of uh, helpful or promising form of resistance to our dominant therapeutic culture, or um, or does it just offer anything new um, or old that that could counter some of the the worst um, trends in modern life. And so um, in something like Gladiator, we can see how there are um, legitimate, you know, ancient Stoic ideas, but contending with some of what uh, the modern context brings. So what I uh, fear about the resurgence of Stoicism is that... um, it can often be pretty far from what ancient Stoicism was in one of its core um, tenets, which was um, emotional control, um, self-control. And um, sometimes in the new Stoicism, as we see it in some popular culture um, expressions, um, instead just latches onto kind of the warrior ethos and translates into a uh, pro kind of force, a pro aggression stance that would be very foreign to the ancient Stoic philosophers. Yeah, the, I think uh, that brings to mind, you know, the idea of capitalism as creative destruction. And you know how uh, ideas, even ancient ideas, all kinds of ideas get absorbed and commodified. And the way I've seen Stoicism 
manifested. Nobody calls it that, but it's this idea of in business, you're, you know, you're ruthless and you're tough and, you know, you don't show any emotion and you're never weak. And uh, that stoicism uh, has been co-opted for, you know, gain, profit, personal advancement. Is that not happening with all these uh, schools of thought, Epicureanism, that people take those ideas and have commodified them and made them really turned them around to, for their own uh, gain? Well, that's what I warn against in the book. That's what I'm worried about. I think that the resurgence of interest in these uh, really sometimes very elaborate and deep ways of thinking about the world, about big questions that we face, um, is so promising. But if it's going to be co-opted or um, basically just hijacked by um, our dominant culture at present, at present um, then then it won't be promising and it won't provide anything new. And I think many people are turning to different schools of thought as an attempt to have an alternative to the dominant way of thinking. For instance, with Stoicism, I think part of the turn toward it is um, a, a, uh, a criticism, a, a sense of dissatisfaction with the therapeutic culture, as though um, that all of the therapeutic culture is kind of soft and encouraging us to be not, not strong and not um, resilient enough. And so we see this this kind of approach coming through things like cognitive behavioral theory, which was um, very informed by Stoicism, as a as a, a an alternative way of handling everyday life, that um, that kind of you know casts us as um, not victims, but able to to take control of our lives and and um, to turn. Uh, what the the small part of life that we can control into a better uh, course. So um, I think that there's an attempt to um, work against some of the therapeutic culture. And I think there's a fear um, for me that that attempt will be subverted because the dominant culture is so strong that it's hard to get away from that. Okay. So you also, you end, you end the book, but even I've got other questions after this, but you end, you end the book with Platonism and calling for maybe not a return, but a reevaluation of its value. Uh, so what is Platonism and how can it serve us today? Platonism is too complicated for me to define in, in short. That's yeah, why I have <laughs> these full chapters. And I do hope that any interested readers will come to the book, even if um, a particular part uh, interests them other, more than another, because each chapter does um, examine a particular school of thought. So with Platonism, one of the aspects that we can point to for the sake of our conversation is the interest in ideals. And there's much debate over this, um, but I'm pointing to a new uh, set of uh, works that reevaluate Platonism and really question um, the ways that it has often been dismissed as 
oh, part of the entire Western intellectual tradition's problem um, with the separation of mind and body. And I think that that's um, not fair to Platonism. And if we throw Platonism out of the conversation among schools of thought, then we lose the one school that constantly tries to remind us of ideals, what the ideals are that we are striving for. So even if um, we can't ever reach those ideals, if we lose sight of them, then we might have to wallow in a world that's either Gnostic or cynical. Um, and those ways of thinking have, you know, are playing themselves out, I believe, or at least not helping people arm themselves for the struggles of everyday life or the great crises that we're facing today. Well, we are talking about ideals, you know, that's a very, just the idea of ideals is a very uh, controversial topic because we don't have one culture any longer. We have fragmented culture with many different enclaves and groups and tribes and uh, in America, at least in America. And to come up with ideals uh, that we would all aspire to, what would those be? Um, I, I do believe that we all aspire to things like love, and beauty and goodness, but I don't um, feel that we have to make that argument that everyone shares the exact same particulars about those things um, or about anything else. Um, Plato um, wrote in the dialogue form, as we know, and um, he he expressed many different views that one could take on almost every subject. Um, I think we can still get at a sense anyway of what he might think or, you know, Socrates, who is often a protagonist in his work and, and was an influence on him. Um, but there is, there is not a sense that there is just one ideal for every occasion that every single person has to share. What there is a sense of is that we as human beings strive to reach toward the ideal or to um, explore it and think about it sometimes all of our lives long, that that's, that's part of the, the human experience. Um, so when I talk about these different schools of thought, one of the things I'm longing for and, and um, I guess arguing for is if we're going to bring back one of the schools of thought, we shouldn't really ignore the context in which they emerged in antiquity because they were often emerging in relation to the other schools of thought. And so um, it was a, a rich conversation among different ways of approaching different aspects of life, all aspects of life, really. These were really um you know, far-reaching philosophies, and people dedicated their whole lives to understanding what the implications might be for, say, approaching life in a Stoic way or a Platonist way. So it was um, really the conversation about ideals that all of Plato's works are about, not really the sense that here are the ideals and then everyone needs to subscribe to them and, and apply them, not in any way, shape, or form. It was, it's the sense that um, true wisdom 
comes from trying to to climb toward understanding, um, not just of one little specialized you know sphere, but greater understanding in general of human beings, of the world, of of the situation in which we find ourselves, of all uh, big questions facing us. So. I think I would go so far as to say, and I think Plato and, and the Neoplatonists and, and many of the other philosophers and other schools of thought would go so far as to say, as human beings, we do share often, you know, maybe always, you can never really generalize to that extent, but often we share certain strivings, certain desires uh, for some kind of connection with other people is one of them. Um, maybe for some kind of sense of uh, meaning could be another one. Um, we could debate even that and say, no, that's that's not even um, widespread, uh, let alone universal. But um, if you think that it is part of the human endeavor to ask questions, then um, I think that ideals are are still part of the equation. Um, also in in our practices in everyday life and also in um, the professions and the arts um, in you know science and in all of our endeavors in bricklaying and gardening um, to say that there's no attempt to reach toward the ideal would probably make it impossible to account for these practices and what are they what are people involved in those practices actually doing they're not trying to um just sort of emote or um get something out there anything they're often um striving towards something ideal in their mind even if the ideal is something like you know um criticizing uh, the world as it is or some part of it now you described uh philosophy as a way of life. And I'm wondering if our society is so fragmented and individualistic, can the can the person, the human person alone, without any tradition, coming from any tradition, find this on their own? Can they do this on their own? And um, I think to me, that's the linchpin, that it seems like we're still back to the individual having to figure this out themselves because the uh, the traditions that people have had in the past are just not there or have lost strength and are not as influential I mean mm-hmm. how do how does a person do this well I just as I I think Platonism brings ideals into the equation we cannot lose sight of reality and you're absolutely right. Um, we live in a fragmented world, a polarized world. It's it's absolutely terrifying. You know, even up to this very day, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but um, so I guess, you know, to be realistic, of course, it is going to be up to the individual to pursue um, inwardness in this way. It probably always has. However, there are ways that a society can either be friendly or unfriendly to this pursuit. So there are actually a multitude of ways that we could 
foster this sort of inwardness um, if if we took it seriously and we asked ourselves um, what would nurture um, individuals who are um, trying to do this? What would what would um, could we remove some things that would make this pursuit more possible for more people? So I think the entire design of our our uh, schools, our, um, our, our public spaces, um, our politics for sure, um, and many of our other activities could be rethought um, along these, the lines of what would allow us to think of our lives in this really rich way as part of a conversation um, about what is the best way to live. It, it, um, it could uh, be brought into decisions of all kinds. Uh, something like, um, well, how would we um, plan a town? So town planning, you know, is it is it better for our pursuit of inwardness to um, structure uh, buildings that are um, of human scale? Rather than um, very impersonal, in that, that um, our public spaces in ways that we can associate with one another or uh, peacefully take time out and get space, rather than um, be caught up in in you know the busyness of the world. So you know, the, where are the contemplative spaces that were once available? Um, we often think of progress, that we are somehow at the cutting edge of all things good. And in many ways, we really have made tremendous progress as human beings, you know, um, just modern medicine. Think of uh, what we are all hoping for today to help us in the pandemic. Um, so there are many, many ways that we have made tremendous steps toward good, you know, things that, things that are good for human beings. But there are also a lot of ways that um, people are interfered with on their in their attempts to live good lives or live meaningful, healthy, happy, peaceful lives. So we could do so much to make the art of living, ars vitae, and also inwardness more prominent and to protect that activity. Um, well, you know, I'm thinking about <clears throat> that uh, life ideals and ethics uh, are caught, not taught. <laughs> and without guides, uh, mentors, spiritual directors, wise elders present in our lives to help us to ask the deeper questions, are we, we end up being backed up into you know self-reliance, self-help. We're on our own. And what I've noticed in the culture is this, just there's not even hardly even what I would call spiritual friendship, uh, people supporting each other in this inwardness that you're talking about. Um, how do we revitalize friendship? And I know that the ancients talked about friendship. Yes, they did. Uh, it was one of the fundamental values um, and it has been for many other people since. And so, there, you know, there are many philosophers of many ages and theologians and 
uh, writers and, and common people um, who have been cultivating friendships um, and cultivating cultivating them as a spiritual relation um, that we we uh, we don't have to think of ourselves as unconnected from. So I think that uh, one of the things I'm trying to put out there in this book is um, that um, we have all of these traditions. And this is only talking about the, um, the so-called Western intellectual tradition, although these um, schools of thought have found purchase all over the world um, and been influenced by other schools of philosophy and other, other cultural traditions. Um, so it, it isn't at all, you know, that these schools of thought only have application to um, the so-called West, you know. Um, but um, so I think that um, pursuing them uh, requires um, uh, going beyond just the individual, to, to think of oneself as situated in a world. And part of that act of, you know, getting grounded in where one actually is in the world is, you know, maybe waking up to the reality that we have all of these cultural riches at our disposal. We are not the first people who lived on the face of the earth. We came after many other people and generations and they did things and and some of the things that they did are now sort of um, in the background and those things might be the things that we need more um, so I don't see it as an effort of reinventing oneself or reinventing in a world uh, of intellect or spirit that um, only isolated individuals can can uh, do. I think of it more as picking up threads that were left to us. Yes, maybe now it's just mere threads, and they're all separate from one another. Um, but they were once woven together. Um, this is part of what uh, thrills me about the history of ideas, uh, or intellectual history, or or just. Um, the pursuit of ideas of any kind is that we can often see that there were other ideas, kind of the roads not taken, but they're not gone as long as any one of us is still willing to, to read old books or to hear the voices of people who lived in the past. And we often um, make our next kind of intellectual or cultural movement by looking to the past and picking up some of those threads. So there's no reason why we can't pick up this, this ongoing cultural conversation, which until really recently was kind of the frame for how many people debated issues and uh, weighed the different aspects of, um, of living and, and, uh, and kind of drew for a resource of how to handle suffering and other challenges. Now, you don't talk about this much, but I wanted to ask, do you think that we have given up on religion too easily? Because I'm thinking of the long monastic traditions of contemplation and the accompanying disciplines. Some of those disciplines are 
individual, some of the more communal disciplines, and which is a rich and deep well. We've got 2,000 years of, of history of uh, many contemplative individuals, uh, not only in Christianity, but also in Jewish thought, Muslim thought. Uh, so the question is, is monotheism still viable as a source of ideals for, for our modern society? I think it absolutely is, and I agree. Those traditions that you're citing are um, one of the reasons why we can still talk about something such as inwardness. Um, that's uh, where inwardness was cultivated in many uh, time periods and in many places, and and really protected, given given a place where it could flourish. Um, I would never give up hope as long as we want to think about posterity, because if we care about people coming after us, then we need to care about what what world they'll have and what resources they'll have to deal with that. Um, So I don't give up hope, and I think many people still practice in these religious traditions. I, I though, um, would... would, uh, join many uh, religious writers and and critics of some of these um, religious expressions today in saying that um, many of them fit all too well the modern therapeutic and consumer society. You get Um, co-opted. Yeah, yeah, and they, they often allow people to distort the teachings um, beyond belief that um, so they they no longer become moral frameworks for how to get along with other people and and you know try to um, treasure and honor the world around us, but instead sort of give license to again to pursue self-interest or unlimited self-expression even at the cost of hurting other people. So that that doesn't fit with the teachings of many of those traditions. So I, I think it, those those um, forms that fit uh, modern individualism and and selfishness, frankly, and also aggression and unkindness, um, have really taken taken the teachings of the different traditions off the rails, and certainly gotten rid of inwardness or the cultivation of the inner life and the conscience and. Uh, you know, the space where you can take your own actions and assess whether they are fitting the your commitments, your moral commitments and your spiritual ideals. Well, one thing that uh, your, your book caused me, I moved after I finished it and I was kind of looking at it in the context of where we are today, right in the middle of this pandemic. And I thought, it seems to me that the silver lining of this pandemic if there is one, would be that it has forced people to stop. And maybe in the stopping, you know, the social whirlwind, the travel, the consumption, you know, all the ways that we've been, we were just so uh, on hyperdrive before COVID, then now people uh, have time, or maybe they, maybe they, or maybe not even time, but maybe just an inclination to think more deeply about what their ideals are, what their values are, what their relationships are about, how they make a living, everything. People are questioning everything. They're questioning their marriages. They're questioning, 
everything about their lives. And I think that that is maybe the silver lining and maybe uh, what you're saying about inwardness and turning uh, toward these traditions, uh, philosophical traditions, uh, might help us at this very specific particular time. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, when we think about what we're experiencing and, and what people who are losing loved ones are experiencing or who are suffering um, physical pain um, themselves and, and dying, some of them, many of them, uh, when we think of this worldwide crisis and tragedy, it's very hard to speak of anything good about it. Um, because of course we would never will this. Um, we would always want this not to have taken place and, and wish that we were not in this crisis, this public health crisis, um, worldwide calamity, uh, tragedy. But we are. And throughout human history, humans have found themselves in wars, in pandemics, in um you know, nuclear attacks uh, or being the nuclear aggressors, famine, um, to say nothing of all the individual suffering, um, such as addiction or self-harm or, um, um, you know, eating disorders, all kinds of things that have been plaguing people before this happened. And, um, Yes, I think as a silver lining, it has slowed things down tremendously. It has made people rethink um, how they live and and how they will live after this. If if you know, for those who are lucky to survive this, um, it's causing tremendous self reflection. So it becomes more vital to me that we think about the form that the self-reflection is taking. We, we don't need more of the forms of the therapeutic culture or the consumer culture that were just exacerbating the problems and dividing us and making us more polarized, more self-obsessed, but not in a constructive way, and, and less happy. Um, less able to to live in the world um, in a good relationship with the world uh, where we're not destroying the very planet that's giving us sustenance and we're not destroying the social ties that are also giving us sustenance. So um, it does seem like a perfect time for us to dig as deeply as we can into the inner resources that we might have to face this tragedy and any other uh, either personal or, or um, social public crises to come. What's interesting about what you just said is that uh, therapeutic culture is really uh, full-blown right now because you see it all over the media, you know, about how to take care of yourself during the pandemic. And I'm talking about things, you know, have a warm bubble bath and, you know, mm-hmm. by yourself, a teddy bear and have pajamas and it's all this kind of comfort yeah. uh, therapeutic stuff but that doesn't really ask people to dig deeper into how they're dealing with this, this pandemic. They're, they're kind of being treated almost like their children mm-hmm. that have to be soothed 
There's a lot of soothing yeah. going on. And I understand it, uh, but we've got to look beyond just being soothed to uh, to recalibrate our society. Mm-hmm. I agree. Those are panaceas, I think, on the whole. Of course, everyone needs to be soothed. What they really need to be able to do is things like hug one another and, and such. But um, we, we must, um, you know, mask up. We must keep social distance. We must be very serious about that. Uh, the numbers are going way up, the numbers of deaths and all of the people getting the illness and suffering, um, the people who uh, may seem in- asymptomatic and have symptoms long, a long time later. We, we just don't know the, the full extent of the suffering um, that is happening. Um, so, um, so what do we really need? Um, yes, of course, soothing, and maybe these things are helping. And if they are, you know, little things helping people, uh, that's great. But the truth is that before the pandemic, there were also very uh, apparent, obvious signs that many people were suffering from various different things. Um, they, they, you know, before this, there was an epidemic of um, drug addiction in this country, and that was terrifying. The number of people dying every day from that, and you know, going to emergency rooms, and um, that was already very much in the headlines before this health crisis. And there were many other ones as well. And that's why I think that we need to think deeply about the culture. Um, what kind of messages? Are, do we get? What kind of resources do we receive and give people um, when someone goes to be soothed, maybe? Um, um, what are the messages received in, you know, along with that soothing? Um, we need to find much deeper resources. And one of the things that causes so much pain for me is that these resources exist. And, and many people throughout history have known that they existed and have supported the endeavors um, that, that um, connect with uh, practices of the inner life, with um, ways of thinking about the arts that allow you to, um, to pursue large questions about life um, and uh, university life, the structure of our education. Um, so much of that has now turned toward skills that you can use um, in the pursuit of, um, you know, careers and wealth. But if you don't have the other resources that allow you to continue to live from day to day, particularly with crises and and suffering uh, of yourself and other people and loss, um, what good are those things um, and and so the the humanities have been the traditional repository of a lot of this um, activity of of thinking about life deeply and exploring all different ways of approaching the crises that we face and and really uh, carrying on the conversation and debates about which are the better ways and which are the less good ways, the more constructive and the um, dangerous uh, ways of dealing with these questions. Um, so um, the, the humanities and um, the, the world of the arts, museums, you know, concerts, music, uh, all the activities 
um, of the world that humans have engaged in are, are tied in with visions of what the world can be and, and how we can live in the world. And so one of the ways that we have access to those are through practices of um, study and reflection, listening to music, deeply to music, not just, you know, some kind of jingle that can kind of, you know, help us uh, walk along in our day, you know, that it, there's a good, good driving beat or something like that. Not that I'm opposed to any music like that, but, um, but I mean, really listen, listen to one another, listen to, um, you know, read great novels that have spoken to many people in, you know, all over the world. Um, why systematically deprive ourselves of those resources, which is how I feel as though uh, modern life is is basically structured. Okay, so I want to ask you a, a final question. What is the takeaway for the reader? What would you like the reader to take from your book? Um, I would love it if just one reader out there felt that after reading this book, there was some kind of hope um, in maybe a situation that started to feel hopeless. Um, that would be one thing. Um, I would like readers to get lots of different things out of the book, maybe different things for different readers, uh, according to what people want or need or what speaks to them. Um, I felt that uh by starting to um, read more philosophy and and religion theology, um, you know, get back into the art history that I was really immersed in in earlier life and the languages, the literatures, that um, it it just um, is. If you take a scale and on one part of the scale you have um, the kinds of you know, easy self-help solutions that we find often on the internet or in some of the, um, the uh, you know, self-help guides and things like that. I'm not saying all of them are, are, are you know, are weak, but, but some of them, many of them, most of them, I would say, have messages that are, again, they might be a panacea, but are they really going to help you in your hour of need? That's how I would assess whether a, a philosophical approach or an approach period is is helpful. Um, so on one side of the scale, you have all the modern self-help approaches and the dominant cultural messaging that we have. And then on the other side of the scale, you have um, even just one fine piece of music, you know, like a one opera, one one symphony, one uh, classic rock and roll song, one um, novel, one one work of philosophy. Even just one is going to, you know, topple the scale toward it because of the depth and the intricacy that that you find in these. So each great work, truly great, that speaks to to you that that can can help you with your actual living, um, whatever form it takes, whether it's a cathedral or. Um, you know, a, a coffee shop, um, whatever form human creativity has taken, it can speak to you, it can speak volumes, it can speak a world, it can open a world to you. And to me, that's a richer resource than, say, a self-help guide that says, oh, here are five ways that you can transform your life and help you 
you know, get the career and the world, the, the life that you want, the relationships that you want. There's nothing to say that those perspectives are informed by wisdom. And many times they're competing with one another and not even taking very seriously the, the questions that human beings really ask themselves and, and struggle with over the course of their life. So these resources are there. And um, what better time than the present, the, the moment that we face of, of um, you know, bitter bitter pain and struggle and to 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 figure out um is there any meaning given the amount of suffering that we face yes there is i mean human beings have faced these questions in times of great trial um and so let's let's not forget that they have left a record for us there are ways to think about um, handling everyday problems, and you don't have to study philosophy. Um, you don't have to study art history. You don't have to study history. You can just take one of the gems that we've inherited that are available in libraries or museums or, or on the internet um, uh, or in the minds of of people we're associated with who might tell us the story or share something that they've seen, um, share a song that they've heard that they love, that makes an, a sense of the world in some way to them. So I, I think mainly I would say, um, I hope um, a reader might uh, get something um, like um maybe reinforcement if they already practice this way of living, um, or maybe a reminder in case they've become removed from it, uh, but get a sense that we really need to listen to other people and, and observe the world around us and take it all in. Life is very short, even under the best of circumstances. Why not spend it uh, with this incredible inherited free resource of culture, basically, um, because that's where we'll find deeper answers to our problems. We seek them in self-help, and there's nothing wrong with seeking them in self-help. I've read many, many self-help guides myself, probably gotten a certain amount of good stuff out of it. Um, but if we want real answers, it's a lifelong quest we're talking about because there will be new crises and in real, you know, the longer we're allowed to live on this face of the earth, the more grief and loss we might face um, or other, uh, we, we might encounter other things um, that, you know, demand answers in our minds for us to be at any kind of um, position of peace, peace of mind. So I would just say, um, if it helps any any one person reconnect with the resources that are all around us to read or to see a painting, etc., then um, that would be great. Um, it would be, you know, very 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 inspiring to me to think that uh, what I've said here resonated even for one other person. 
Well, Elizabeth, you have just given the best commercial for the arts and humanities in the time of COVID <laughs> that I've heard in a long yes. time. Yes. You know, we talk a lot about science right now. We talk a lot about the economy, fix the economy, science as the answer, which all those have their place. But uh, we don't hear very much about really drawing deeply into this cultural well that we have. Um to help us uh, get through this and find some meaning and get beyond it. Uh, so, Elizabeth, uh, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another New Books Network podcast. This is your host, Lillian Barger.